Ready to go? Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the 664th regular meeting of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. Uh, tonight, featuring our speaker, A. Wilson Green, speaking on the Petersburg campaign. We're going to be introducing uh, Will Green shortly. In, uh, in the meantime, Donna, are you here? Donna, would you introduce our guests? Whoops. Good evening and welcome. We have one, two, three, four, five guests. Gillian Ferguson, please stand up. Uh, Carrie Schmidt. Kurt Schmidt. And Mark Smith. Thank you and welcome, and we hope you'll think about joining us. All right. Thank you, Donna. Donna, while you're here, would you care to speak on the Chicago I've got to tour? Get my other piece of paper. Okay. <laughs> and Jerry Allen is not here, but there is Jerry Allen's uh, co-chair here. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, the Shiloh Tour is very much on track. We're going to have a great three and a half days there. Um, see, we're going to be working out the finances. Uh, probably in another month we'll have the exact finances. The Holiday Inn Express in Corinth, Mississippi. Uh, great place. And we have extra rooms next door at, at a place there. Uh, Ed and Stacy Allen will be the uh, uh, guides, as usual. And... Uh, we're gonna have a lot of fried catfish and pulled pork, so you can't you can't miss that. So see you then. Thank you, Donna. Mm -hmm. uh, Brooks Davis will be leading a tour of Chicago Civil War sites the last Friday in October, October 27, and this is a, a great opportunity to see all there is in Chicago. Three cemeteries, Roseland, Grace, Rose Hill, Graceland, and Oakhurst Cemetery on the south side where there is a mass grave with Confederate soldiers buried. We'll also stop at the tomb of um, Senator Douglas and we're trying to get into a funeral home on the south side that is owned by a black man who flies the Confederate flag. Uh, Oh, we are hurrying up. We're waiting for a return call. Uh, he died, and there is a wonderful collection of Civil War artifacts there. That's on the site of Fort Douglas, right? Well, it's close to the, the uh, Fort Douglas site. Okay. It's real close to the uh, Illinois camp, IIT campus. <clears throat> now, uh, that's all the good news. Brooks couldn't be here tonight. He had to go to Springfield. But he asked me to put out a big, strong invitation to you all. We do not have enough people signed up for this tour to carry it, and we would hate to cancel it because there are a lot of people who want to go. So I would appreciate it if you would tell me tonight if you are interested. I, fill, I left registration forms out on the table, blue forms with all the details. The cost is $45. That includes lunch and uh, tips. It includes everything. So please let me know if you want to go. I just want a head count so I can deal with the bus company next week. The date, October 27, the last Saturday in the month. 
8.45 a.m. in front of the Chicago History Museum, and we will return to that museum no later than 4.15, probably earlier. And there is parking with a reduced fee nearby in Lincoln Park. Donna, how many more do we need before we can do the tour for sure? Well, we need 21 more people, uh, no, about 20, somebody else signed up tonight, in order to get the 31-seat uh, bus. If we get more, we can have a larger bus. So please give it your uh, full consideration. If you're sitting on the fence, fall our way. Thank you. Yeah, unless we get enough um, interest tonight, we'll have to cancel the tour. So please, if you have any interest, please speak up and uh, let Donna know. Roger? Thinking uh, way ahead, planning for the Kentucky uh, Lincoln tour in 2009, we're happy to confirm the fact that our number two bus guide will be none other than Will Green. Hooray for our side. Uh, thank you, Roger. And Larry, would you speak about future book raffles, please? This is not the book raffle right now. This is future book raffles that we're talking about. Uh, we'll have the book raffle after the announcements, but uh, we're going to try something different uh, next uh, time, and that is that forever, for however. Okay. The Battlefield Preservation Committee of uh, Chicago Roundtable will match the amount of money that um, the book raffle brings in. So we're going to try that next time. Rob Girardi will be able to explain a little bit more and. Uh, it'll be all set up uh, next time for that. But we'll have the raffle after the uh, announcements by Roger. We're very fortunate tonight to have two authors, two current authors, uh, here with their books tonight. And I, if you haven't already been aware, I want to call your attention to uh, A. Wilson Green, our speaker tonight, whose book, Civil War Petersburg, um, Wilson was, Will was signing tonight, but you're sold out. But w I'm sure we can find some more books. Uh. All right. Thank you. And uh, our own Bob Miller, uh, both prayed to the same God. Um, uh, Bob's book has been available, will be available. And our congratulations to our own Bob Miller for uh, just a fabulous job a fabulous job of writing his first Civil War effort in writing. Thank you, Bob. And uh, do we have a preservation report? Anybody doing a preservation report tonight in, in lieu of Mary? Virtually the whole committee is gone. The whole committee is gone. They're preserved elsewhere tonight. Um, well, then why don't we, uh, at this point, take a 10-minute break, and we'll resume with the, with the regular meeting. Thank you. Uh, 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. This is still the uh, 664th meeting, and I'd like to um, call Larry Gibbs up for right. our book raffle. Okay, let's see how we're going to do this. I need to, is that your coffee? Yeah, I can move it. All right. How many books? Three? Three books. Okay, first, before I start the uh, book raffle, uh, Bill Kovacs uh, paid for a... Uh, Paid for a session out at uh, the Cantini, at Cantini uh, which is on October 20th, next Saturday. And it's already paid for, but if anybody wants to go, please see me after the meeting. And uh, you get a free ticket to go to Cantini. And uh, they have a very good symposium there, including uh, uh, Longacre. Edward Longacre is going to speak there. Ed Earl Hess is going to speak. And several other good speakers in this symposium. So see me afterwards if you uh, want to go to the uh, want to go to that uh, symposium. Now we have the uh, we have the auction. Uh, we have the uh, raffle, and uh, we have three books. Let's see. What? How much money did we raise? Uh, we raised ninety-three dollars tonight uh, for battlefield preservation. And Hal, you want to be the first one? All right. Okay. Uh, the last three numbers are 779. 779 for the last three numbers. Okay. Okay, fine. Thank you. You get a choice of Okay. Okay, the next uh, numbers, if I can read it here. Uh, the next uh, ticket is uh, 805. The last three numbers are 805. Anybody? Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Go ahead, pick one of those. Thanks. And the last book tonight will be uh, 826. Last three numbers are 826. Anybody go home early? 826. 826. Going once? <laughs> yes. All right. All right. Very good. Come on down. Tonight, do we have a winner? <laughs> okay. You have a choice of. Uh, you have a choice of this book. 
that's a good choice. It's a very good choice. All right. That's okay. it. We're done. We're done. done. Congratulations. We're done. Okay. And also, uh, don't forget the silent auction. We still have some good books uh, available. The silent auction will continue until about 10 minutes after the meeting. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Larry. And now I'd like to introduce Larry Hewitt, our own Larry Hewitt, sooner or later. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. We missed the quiz. I'm glad you're watching out for me here. Quizmaster. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Quizmaster. Sorry, Larry. All right, A. Wilson Green on the Civil War, Petersburg, um, Confederate City in the Crucible of War. Um, question number one, the Siege of Petersburg, well, that should have been the longest. Uh, and more than some of you have the largest, so you got credit for it either, either way. But if it had been the longest, the answer is true. Two, did John Breckinridge serve as Confederate Secretary of War? Yes, he did. Three, did the Battle of the Crater lead directly to the fall of Petersburg? No, it didn't. Four, was Ambrose Burnside relieved from active command, at least in part because of his role in planning the crater? Yes, he was. Was Brigadier General, Confederate Brigadier General John R. Cook uh, involved in the Petersburg campaign Yes, he was. And was he related to Union General Philip St. George Cook? Yes, he was Philip Cook's son. One person had 100, and that was White Sox Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you. Larry, one more time. <laughs> My apologies for uh, skipping the quiz. That's all right. Larry Hewitt. My wife is just, I have visual aids. <laughs> Boo! Who said that? Who said that? Squeak by, you saw college football at its finest. Wait a minute. I, oh, okay. Well, no, I was going to say, the, LA, the LSU coach pulled off five miracles in a row, Father. You should appreciate God's presence on the battlefield. Roger, I thank you for this opportunity to introduce tonight's speaker, a gentleman I've known for over 31 years. I'd like to say we first met in Sunday school, but it was a different classroom. Will and I were both graduate students at Louisiana State University where we studied under Terry Williams. At that time, Will was on leave from the National Park Service to finish his master's, where he was a protege, a promising protege, of Ed Bars. After receiving his master's degree at LSU, he left to serve as assistant historian under Bob Crick at Fredericksburg. I had the opportunity to observe Will in that role, and I found him more than anyone else I've ever met in my entire life to have the ability to take off his ranger hat at the end of the day 
and leave the job at the job, a talent many of us need to develop. And I mean that, I mean that positively. Absolutely, absolutely, no, absolutely. Advancing through the ranks of the National Park Service, he became manager of the Chalmette National Battlefield located in St. Bernard Parish. Escape from the job there was harder for Will. He described the surrounding area as, and I quote, the armpit of America. <laughs> Will did his best to improve that environment. He ran a radio talk show host, uh, was a radio talk show host, and he also taught at the local college. Finally, he took a double demotion to return to his old position with Bob Crick. It took God a little while longer to give up on St. Bernard, but he finally took care of it with Katrina. Current plans of the Corps of Engineers call for one-third of the parish to be left permanently uninhabited. So Will had great foresight. After 16 years in the National Park Service, Will left to become the first executive director of the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, a position he held from 1990 to 94. Under Will's leadership, the APCWS made tremendous strides in battlefield preservation. The APCWS was one of two organizations that merged in 1999 to form the Civil War Preservation Trust, on whose board our own Mary Abro currently serves, and which currently awards an A. Wilson Green Scholarship annually. Upon leaving the APCWS in 1994, will assume the post he currently holds at Pamplin Historical Park, which opened that year and contains the site where Grant finally broke through Lee's line in April of 1865. The titles of President and Executive Director and CEO, and I'm sure others, do not begin to recognize the contribution that Will has made to Pamplin Historical Park and the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier. If it wasn't for Will, I doubt the facility would even exist. It certainly would not be the premier Civil War museum in the country. I was delighted just a few minutes to learn from Robert that the 2011 tour, which is long overdue, is going back to Petersburg. So all of you will have the opportunity to see this wonderful museum that Will has developed. Recently added an exhibit called Trial by Fire, a multi-sensory battlefield simulation that has been criticized as being too realistic for children and many adults. If people knew how horrible war was, there would be fewer wars. And no site comes closer than Pamplin Park to bringing the entire Civil War to life. As demanding as Will's job is, he finds time to do other things. With the exception of Ed Bars, he has probably given more Civil War tours than anyone else. He's written several books and numerous articles on the war, and his most recent publication, which many of you and myself managed to purchase this evening, is Civil War Petersburg, Confederate City in the Crucible of War. It just received the 2007 Lanny Price for Distinguished Scholarship and Writing on the Military and Political History of the Civil American Civil War 
given by the Austin Civil War Roundtable. It is with great pleasure that I give you my number one candidate for our Nevins Freeman Award, Will Green. Well, thank you very much for that warm welcome. And uh, Larry, uh, I was going to tell the group about several gatherings in your trailer at Port Hudson in the 1980s, but after that wonderful introduction, I'll just save that for another occasion. Uh, it's, it's pro forma for a speaker to say how glad he is to be there, whether he is or not, but in this case, I really am because Chicago is my hometown. I was a little disappointed that we didn't have the quiz, uh, the 1959 starting lineup for the Go-Go White Sox. I thought that would be a, as a, a Bruce and I and, and several others share a, an affinity for the pale holes here. Uh, no offense to you Cubs fans. How the Cubs do in the playoffs this year? Oh. But, uh, although how the White Sox do in a regular season, uh, I'll just go ahead and answer that question. But. Uh, I do, I do appreciate those kind words, Larry. Interesting that you mentioned about Trial by Fire, which is a, uh, an exhibit in our National Museum of the Civil War Soldier. About two weeks, I've been asked to give a talk at the Southern Historical Association meeting in Richmond on interpreting violence and combat violence in, in historic sites. Uh, not only is that exhibit in our museum somewhat controversial, but we did a film that any of you who have been to the park in the last, oh, I guess, two years may have seen. Uh, that uh, it's called War So Terrible, and it's a dramatic film, about 48 minutes long, although there's a shorter version for kids, that uh, attempts, among other things, to portray to modern Americans what Civil War combat was really like. And uh, that has also been controversial. We've had some school groups and, and adults uh, complain that it was just too, too violent for people to see. And so it's an, interesting, it's an interesting topic, which is not our topic tonight, but how do you, you know, something for you to think about, all of you who uh, spend some of your free time going to Civil War sites and enjoying the study of the Civil War, how often do you think of the combat? How important is it? Is it just something that you take for granted? Uh, do you feel it when you go out on the battlefields? What do you see when you stand on an open field and look out across a place that 145 years ago was a, was a killing field? I think these are all legitimate questions that uh, uh, it's about time that many of us begin to grapple with it. A young man here in the front table was doing a research paper and asking how I got interested in the Civil War and I told him that I got interested during the centennial when I was a young boy here growing up in, in Western Springs in Wheaton and uh, the Tribune had a comic strip. I don't know any of you gray beards out there remember that during the centennial the Tribune ran a uh, a weekly comic strip on the Civil War uh, on the Sunday paper and of course there were lots of different um, television programs and popular history things going on about the centennial and I've I've been kinda hoping that the sesquicentennial would give us an opportunity to do the same thing for a new generation not only of young people but of Americans who maybe don't have the same affinity for our Civil War history that all of us do I'm not sure that's gonna happen uh, for a variety of reasons but at any rate, it's an exciting time to be in the Civil War field these days, and I do thank my good friend Larry for that wonderful introduction, and Roger for inviting me and giving me a chance to come back to Chicago. 
Roger, I am going to talk a little something a little different than what you promised the folks. We're not going to really talk about the Petersburg campaign per se. Uh, invite me back in about six years. I've got a contract with the University of North Carolina Press to do two volumes on the Petersburg campaign if I live that long. I sometimes have a death wish as I look at my 212-page bibliography and wonder how I'm possibly going to get to all those sources. But tonight I thought I would uh, I'd spend some time talking about the, the object of the Petersburg campaign, which was the city of Petersburg. And uh, you have a map which is not all that much of help for you all who are familiar with where Petersburg is uh, in Virginia. But uh, let me tell you a little something about the background of this interesting city where, where I've lived for the last 13 years. If I was to ask you all to name the seven largest cities in the Confederacy, why don't you throw out some, throw out some cities? Atlanta, wrong. New Orleans, Charleston, Richmond, no, Mobile, wrong. Savannah, Savannah wrong. Wrong. Nashville. Yes. Petersburg and Memphis. You think of all those, all those cities, and what's the one that's just a small city today, and that's the only one that didn't grow is, is Petersburg. It was the seventh largest city in the Confederacy, and by the time the Civil War rolled around, it was an ancient town. It was established in 1645 on the fall line of the Appomattox River. As uh, most of you who know Virginia geography appreciate, Virginia's cities grew up on the head of navigation of the tidal river, so they were transfer points between ocean-going vessels and the hinterlands out to the west, and that's how Petersburg on the Appomattox was founded. By 1784, it was the third incorporated city in Virginia, and as I say, by 1860, it was the seventh largest city, second largest city in Virginia, uh, only to Richmond and seventh largest city by 1861 in the Confederacy. It was known as the Cockade City uh, after a comment made by President James Madison uh, after the War of 1812 when the Petersburg volunteers who had fought a brilliant battle at Fort Meigs outside of Toledo, Ohio during that, bat during that war uh, were known for wearing cockades in their shakos and uh, Madison said something about the Cockade City and that sticks today. There's Cockade City, everything all around Petersburg even today. Uh, now, Petersburg grew in the 19th century based on its transportation prominence. First, as a port, as we mentioned, and then secondly, and more relevant to the Civil War era, as a railroad junction city. Uh, the first railroad built out of Petersburg began in 1833, a very early railroad. It's the one that runs south to Weldon, North Carolina. And by the time of the Civil War, a few years before the Civil War, that railroad then connected with Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, which by 1864 was the only functioning Confederate port on the Atlantic seaboard. So I think you can understand why Petersburg by 1864 became a target. But there were a number of other railroads that came into the town. The, the City Point Railroad ran eight miles to the confluence of the James and Appomattox Rivers as a adjunct to using the Appomattox for ship traffic. The Appomattox tended to have a uh, silt in. The channel was very difficult to keep open and as ocean-going vessels became deeper draft in the mid-19th century, some of those larger ships couldn't make it up to Petersburg uh, regularly. So what the city did was simply build this little short-line railroad to the Appomattox and James confluence 
and that made Petersburg a, a port that was impervious to any kind of sediment in the river. There was also a railroad that ran north 23 miles to Richmond, a railroad that ran west 124 miles to Lynchburg, and then finally a railroad that ran to Norfolk. So Petersburg, if you didn't know anything about the military history of the Civil War, you thought that perhaps towns like the one you'll be visiting on your next tour, Corinth, Mississippi, uh, that have railroad junctions were, would be important places for the Army, you'd be right, and your eye would quickly have fallen on Petersburg. Uh, it was also an unusual city in that, unlike most southern market towns, Petersburg was very much an industrial city on the eve of the Civil War. It and Richmond were the two largest tobacco manufacturing cities in the world in 1860. Petersburg had 20 tobacco factories. It also had the distinction of being the northernmost city that both grew and processed cotton. There were four cotton mills in Petersburg. The water power of the Appomattox gave us rise to three flour mills. A third of all of the iron produced in the Commonwealth of Virginia came out of Petersburg. So it was a very industrial town. But the richest people in town were the middlemen, as they always seemed to be. The only people that made money in the gold rush were the people who sold stuff to the, to the, to the gold rush people. And Petersburg commission merchants, as they were known, were the wealthiest folks in town. There were 39 of them listed in the 1860 census, and they, some of them were literal millionaires in 1860. And their homes that you'll still, you'll still see today when you visit the Cockade City in 2011 uh, grace some of the beautiful squares and some of the old residential streets like uh, Market Street and uh, Poplar Lawn Park today. Now, Petersburg was also interesting in terms of its demographics. Uh, the seventh largest city in the Confederacy only had 18,266 people, which gives you an idea of uh, how non-urban the South was on the eve of the Civil War. 50% of those residents were black, 50% were white. 36% of the African American residents in Petersburg were free, which meant that 26% of all the free people in Petersburg were black. No southern city had as high a percentage of free African Americans than Petersburg, which gave rise, and remember this is a big town, relatively speaking, this is not some little asterisk statistic in a small town. So it gave rise to a very interesting black middle class in Petersburg, which had a, uh, some, some things that I talk about during the war years that, that came to light that I think are interesting. Now, Petersburg's white population was uh, not very uh, culturally diverse. It was almost entirely either Scotch, Irish, or English. The two churches that were most prominent were exactly what you'd expect them to be, the Episcopals and the Presbyterians. There were a few Catholics, a few Jews in town, uh, some Baptists and Methodists, but it was primarily Scotch-Irish, Presbyterians, and Episcopals. And it, all the wealth was concentrated in a very small percentage of the white people. 90% of the white people in Petersburg owned no real estate in 1860, whereas uh, in the African-American community, there were 246 property owners, and a number of them owned slaves of their own as business people to assist in their, in their business. So enough of that, but you get an idea that Petersburg was not 
the relatively insignificant small down-in-the-mouth town that it appears to you today. It was one of the South's leading cities and unique in many different ways. Befitting a commercial town like Petersburg, it was a very conservative political town. Uh, that conservatism came out in a number of tangible ways. In the 1860 presidential election, John Bell, the constitutional unionist candidate, garnered more votes than Breckinridge and Douglas combined. Uh, now, Abraham Lincoln did not appear on the ballot in Petersburg, which was the case in most Virginia counties and cities in 1860, but the conservative bell won the election hands down. Uh, Petersburg also demonstrated its conservatism in February of 1861 when, when the state called for a convention to consider Virginia's relationship to the recently departed deep south states that had left the Union in December, January, and February 1st. Petersburg's delegate, a man named Thomas Branch, was a unionist. He ran on a unionist ticket and that's what he went to represent Petersburg uh, in. So now he was a conditional unionist in the sense that his condition was that the federal government not interfere with southern slaveholders' rights to carry their property into the common territories of the country. But short of coercion, which was the operative word of the day, and these conditions of southern rights, which were basically bringing your slaves into the territory, Petersburg and Mr. Branch were pro-union people. Now, that changed pretty quickly in Petersburg. In March of 1861, fortunate for historians, there was an unusual plebiscite held in Petersburg uh, as a result of several different debates that occurred, public debates that occurred about instructions to send Mr. Branch in Richmond. And um, those discussions in that plebiscite resulted in 53% of the voters wanting to change their mind and tell Branch to become a pro-secessionist. Now, what had happened? How did that occur in a month's time? Well, briefly, uh, the failure of the Peace Convention, going back to your, some of your, your pre-war history, your secessionist history, uh, the Peace Convention was primarily a Virginia animal. It met in Washington. Its recommendations were DOA and the upcoming Lincoln administration. That disappointed Virginians. And a number of people in Petersburg were very disappointed in Abraham Lincoln's inaugural address. Now, you grew up in Illinois like I did. Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address is, is one, some of the best, is taught as some of the best, most conciliatory literature ever written by an American figure. But that's not the way it was interpreted in Petersburg. They focused on Lincoln's intent to hold, possess, and occupy the forts in the South that were still under federal control. That smacked of coercion to people in Petersburg. I love this report that a couple of Petersburg citizens sent to one of the local newspapers after they had gone to Washington to attend Lincoln's inauguration. They wrote, quote, the Illinois sucker was as ugly as they ever make them in Illinois, and that state is famous above all others for ugly men, which, which I've always, always took a little offense at, but uh, at any rate, uh, Branch continued to be a, a rather reluctant secessionist, but of course events overwhelmed, uh, overwhelmed him and by April 17th, Branch voted with the majority to take Virginia out of the Union 
and almost instantly this unionist conservative town of Petersburg became very much a rabid pro-Confederate city. Within a couple of days, six of Petersburg's militia companies volunteered for Confederate service, went down to the depot, in Nor for the Norfolk Depot, to go off to the seat of war, which at that point was assumed to be around Hampton Roads. That would have been the, the, the first flashpoint for people in South, Southeast Virginia, much to the great cheer of the citizens. Within another couple of weeks, Petersburg would dedicate 10 infantry companies, two cavalry companies, and three artillery batteries, more than 1,200 young men, the clear majority of the military-aged white men in the city would sign up for the Confederate service. Uh, interestingly enough, after the summer of 1861, however, many of the white men who had not enlisted in the military spent the good part of the war trying to stay out of the military. So our, my experience in, in Petersburg is that the enthusiasm for the war was overwhelming at the beginning, but that pretty much drained everybody who wanted to go, and after that it was a tough, it was a tough struggle to get people to sign up. I found it also interesting in doing my research that um, a number of African Americans, free African Americans in Petersburg, volunteered for service in the Confederate cause. Um, I used, Larry might find this interesting as, a, as an excellent historian, there's a, if anybody does research on Virginia topics, there's a very little used source that I spent hours going through at the State Library of Virginia called the Executive Papers of Virginia. These are all the incoming correspondence to the Virginia governors. They're not indexed, and they're all in the original documents, so it's like a needle in a haystack. But not many people have used them, and I found a lot of gems, including a half a dozen letters from young men in Petersburg saying that they had 100 African Americans willing to take up arms for the Confederacy if the governor would only give them a commission as captain and let them go off and lead these black men to war. Now, of course, the governor was not about to do that in April of 1861, but he did authorize black men to become official Confederate laborers. And so in, uh, very early in May, there was an interesting scene on the courthouse steps of Petersburg, which is still the city's municipal symbol, where 300 black men uh, gathered around and one of their spokesmen stood up and made, in part, this speech. His name was Charles Tinsley. He was one of the business black business owners in Petersburg. We are willing to aid Virginia's cause to the utmost extent of our ability. We do not feel that it is right for us to remain idle here. And when white gentlemen are engaged in the performance of work at Norfolk, that is more suitable to our hands. There is not an unwilling heart among us, and we promise unhesitating obedience to all orders that may be given us. I could feel no greater pride, no more genuine gratification, than to be able to plant the Confederate flag upon the ramparts of Fort Monroe. Now that's the kind of speech that our neo-Confederate friends in the South would love to seize on as evidence of the biracial loyalty to the Confederacy that was visible in the South. Unfortunately, there's not enough evidence really to draw that conclusion, and I would uh, speculate that although there may have been a few of those fellows who were sincere patriots and wanted to fight for Virginia, I suspect that more of them 
we're looking around and smelling the breeze and thinking who is the most endangered class of people in a slaveholder's republic than free African Americans. And I suspect that these guys were going off to trying to get on the right side of the equation uh, before events overwhelm them. But we really don't know because there's not enough evidence to, to draw those conclusions. All right, so the majority of the men are off to war within the first couple of weeks. And almost instantly, the unintended consequences of war, which is something that we all have to bear in mind when we let the genie of war out of the bottle, one thing is sure, we never know where she's going to go, and we never know what's going to happen. And the citizens of Petersburg within the first year got a dose of, of reality that I don't think any of them in April of 1861 could have anticipated. The two biggest problems in the first year of the war were predictable, I think. Shortages and inflation. And shortages came from four different sources. First of all, the blockade kept all foreign imports out of the South. Secondly, the absence of manufactured products from the North. There was no trade with the North anymore. Third was the transportation system. What was out there and available for purchase and use had to compete with military priorities for the rail transportation. And that meant it was hard to get things to market. And fourth, a lack of labor. When ma the majority of your laboring force is in the Army, then that's got to have a negative impact on your ability to manufacture goods. By mid-1863, the shortages had, had fed an inflation that was at the rate of 800% in Petersburg. By 1864, a pound of butter cost more than a month's salary for a Confederate soldier. And all of the time that by mid-April 1863, a, there was a great source, uh, there was a, a schoolmaster in Petersburg who was sort of the daily economic barometer. He would record all of the prices of things in the market about three times a week. So it was kind of easy to do some cleometrics, some, some statistical analysis of prices in Petersburg because of his, because of his careful note-taking. And wages only rose about 55% during this time period. So you can do the math. Think if you're making 50000 a year and now all of a sudden with inflation you're up to about 78000 Well, that's great. Except a gallon of gas now costs $24. You know, a, a gallon of milk now costs $32. And you can see that pretty soon you wouldn't, your money wouldn't go very far. And in an economic climate like this, what do you think the credit market was like? How easy was it to borrow money? <laughs> Who's going to loan money when you've got this kind of inflation rate? So there was, it, it became a cash-only economy very quickly in Petersburg. Now, when cash becomes scarce, people hoard it. And that just adds to the problem. So there's no money circulating. What does the government do when there's not enough money in circulation? They print it. What does that do to inflation? And if this sounds, you know, I and mean, if all sounds sort of 20th century, kind of, you know, modern stuff, well, that's one of the things I came away from in doing the research for this book, that the whole experience in Petersburg, and I'll mention some other things here, was very, very reminiscent of what I think would happen today under domestic crises uh, that would hopefully we'd never experience something like a civil war. Now, wealthier families, managed to get along, they tightened their belts, they maybe heated only one room of their house, they would eat exotic things, 
uh, for protein that um, they would never have thought of eating before. But the working class people and the poor people were absolutely at wit's end. They had to turn to charity. There was no option but turning to charity. By April of 1864, the city of Petersburg, which became a big welfare provider, was contributing $31,000 a month to the welfare of its citizens. Now, compare that to the entire municipal budget in 1860, which was $3,500 for the year. And even factoring in the inflation, you can see that this had an enormous impact on, uh, on the way that the city government ran. Now, where is the city going to come up with the money? When it needs all that money for welfare, what does it do to get it? Hmm? Prints it, yeah. But you got to collect it somehow. You tax. You raise taxes. And that's what happened in Petersburg. Let me, let me sh just share with you, this is from the July 1st, 1861 Municipal Tax Code from Petersburg. Every white or free black male over the age of 16 was liable for a $2 head tax. Now remember, average wages at this time are about 75 to 80 cents a day. So this, this kind of money adds up. Slave owners were assessed $3 for each bondsman over the age of 12. The city taxed real property at the rate of 75 cents per 100 valuation, imposed a personal property levy of 2% on pleasure or riding carriages, horses, mules, watches, clocks, pianos, harps, gold and silver plate jewelry. All other personal property required an annual payment of 3% of its value. The city taxed income at the rate of a half percent on the first $1,500 and 1% on all additional earnings. Interest on stocks or bonds of citizens was taxed at 5%. Owners of, quote, Negro jails or slave pens were liable for a $50 annual fee, and even dog owners had to pay $1 for their first pet and $3 for each additional canine. And it went on and on. The taxes were not enough to pay for everything, and so the citizens in town turned to something that seems very modern to me. They did benefit concerts. They had national acts come to Petersburg, sort of a 1860s version of Farm Aid or something like that. Petersburg had a 700-seat theater called Phoenix Hall, one of the largest venues in Virginia. Uh, I always like to say if the Rolling Stones had been doing an American tour, they would have played Phoenix Hall because it was a very, very important venue. And national acts from all around the South would come and do concerts and then give the proceeds to the poor in Petersburg in order to help them get uh, fuel for the winter or get something to eat. Edmund Ruffin, who was from Petersburg, you might remember the, the name, that, uh, that incredible secessionist and the fellow that blew his brains out at the end of the war because he didn't want to live under a Yankee nation. He was uh, from nearby Prince George County and lived in Petersburg for most of the war said that it seems to me in April of 1863 that our country and cause are now for the first time during the war in great peril of defeat and not from the enemy's arms but from scarcity and high prices. Another consequence of having all the young men in town gone, the fathers, the older brothers, the husbands, was an increase in crime. This would be predictable and it happened in Petersburg. The city uh, interestingly enough, saw the formation of neighborhood gangs. There was gang warfare, the West Ward Gang, the Ettrick Gang, 
the center ward gang. Most of the time these kids who are young enough to escape conscription, but old enough to create problems, 12, 13, 14 year old boys, usually they fought with stones and rocks and clubs, but sometimes they had firearms. And can you imagine the feeling of young David Grimstead's mother when the police came to her door in April of eight, or in uh, August of 1863, knocked on the door and told her that her son David had been killed in one of these gang fights uh, just a week after she'd been notified that her husband had been killed at Gettysburg and her older son was laying in a Richmond military hospital. That's nothing that she had signed up for. Uh, less violent were these gangs of rowdy youths who would hang around public venues. Uh, kind of reminds me of the movie theater in Petersburg today. Uh, as, a, as a newspaper man wrote, smoking rotten cigars and using obscene and profane language. A boy they moralized, a boy allowed to see the scenes and mingle with the idle and dissipated that haunt the streets of a large city at night will soon unblushingly follow the evil example and add one more traveler on the road to ruin. Social life suffered in Petersburg as the men were off to war and the young ladies who should have been enjoying their most prominent times of be as bells of the city had nobody to dance with or to romance with. We are all going to be old maids together, wrote one young woman. Well, said her friend, it will be no disgrace to be an old maid. We can always swear our going-to-be husbands were killed in the war. Such comfort as that might have been. Now, to a certain extent, visiting soldiers who occupied Petersburg filled the romantic void for these young ladies. But they seem to have, according to my research, different opinions of the Petersburg women. Uh, Private Thomas W. Gaither of the 4th North Carolina wrote that uh, there is some good-looking girls here in old Virginia, but the most of them cannot get a meal. They do not suit a North Carolina boy. I would not give a good North Carolina girl for half a dozen of them. But his friend, Joseph Cowand of the 32nd North Carolina, had a little bit different opinion. Now, if any of you have done research, as I know many of you have, you go through, you know, hours and hours of looking at letters and other types of primary sources that you may find nothing that's really worth even taking a note on it. You start getting discouraged and then you run across a collection that is just gold. And this, this collection of letters down at Duke from this fella Cowan who writes in a semi-literate type of spelling, you've all seen uh, that kind of spelling, uh, he was just wonderful. And his letters went to his female cousin back in, in Durham and uh, he was uh, extremely proud of his romantic prowess. This is one letter that he, he wrote to his cousin. I have got 15 little lassies here in Petersburg. I've got six engaged to me now and expect to have six more before the war ends. Now he shamelessly admitted that his irresistible appeal was rooted in the way that he would casually mention to his lady friends uh, the running away of three or four of his slaves back at his plantation, but a man as wealthy as him who would, wouldn't miss three or four slaves one way or the other. And then he said, then they would lean to me like a sore-eyed kitten to a basin of milk. I am as bad a boy as ever was and as cunning as a fox. Uh, sometimes uh, the local women actually became a little too aggressive for the, for the soldiers in town. Like the, uh, 
lady that was dating uh, Louisiana private Eugene Levy, uh, who wrote, uh, she is evidently fast, vain, frivolous, romantic in the extreme, fond of admiration, and disposed to hold lightly the hymenial pledge. In addition to uh, these kinds of social problems, Petersburg citizens experienced uh, loss of their civil rights within the first year of the war. In March of 1862, as a result of the flood of refugees from Norfolk who were fleeing in the face of the arrival of George McClellan's army in Hampton Roads, Petersburg was overrun with all of these strangers and many of the citizens appealed to President Davis to create martial law in the city, which he did on March the 10th, 1862, abrogating all of the local courts requiring any kind of travel to be done with a pass, um, basically stripping people of all of, their, of all of their civil rights. At the same time, Virginia imposed mandatory military service, conscription, for all white men aged 18 to 45, a measure followed up the next month by the Confederate government. So I find it ironic that within less than a year of the celebrations in Petersburg of the secession of the city and the state, at least in part in an effort to avoid the hard hand of a controlling central government, the citizens found themselves with no civil rights and subject to mandatory military service. When you let the genie of war out of the bottle, you never know where it's going to lead. From this point forward, really, enthusiasm for the war in Petersburg began to decline although there were diehards all the way down to the end. But of course, Petersburg had a direct role in the conduct of the Civil War uh, beyond just what its citizens experienced. Uh, most Confederate strategists ignored Petersburg's primary location uh, up until 1862 when Daniel Harvey Hill was the local commander in Petersburg and Hill was the one who pushed for the construction of a defensive line around the city that was designed by and, and overseen by a young captain of engineers named Charles Demock. And today, you may have read about the Demock Line, which was 55 artillery batteries anchored on each end by the Appomattox River and connected with infantry trenches. I was telling some folks at the table uh, tonight that I am reading a manuscript from one of my friends and colleagues, a fellow who I probably has been to your roundtable, Earl Hess, uh, who is writing a series of books on field fortifications in the Eastern Theater and their impact on the war. That sounds like a snoozer, but I want to tell you, they're great books. And he sent me his manuscript on Petersburg to read and comment on. And uh, there's a lot of criticism of the Demock line for the way it was laid out. But at any rate, uh, this was the first of the defenses around the city. Uh, now, the, uh, Petersburg became the, also the head for an, of a number of Confederate military departments, uh, almost always with the name the Department of Virginia and North Carolina, the Department of North Carolina, the Department of Southern Virginia and North Carolina, Petersburg almost always seemed linked not with the war to the north of Richmond, where the Army of Northern Virginia was operating, but it always seemed to look to the south. And I'll talk a little bit about why that is the case. 
Uh, there were a lot of fairly prominent people who were in charge of these departments with headquarters in Petersburg during the war. Um, sort of second-tier guys like Benjamin Hugie, Theophilus Holmes, Samuel French, but then you had D.H. Hill, twice in command of the department, James Longstreet, George Pickett, all one time or another were the commanders at Petersburg. Now they held the responsibility for two major areas of concern, and this is where your map might come in just a little bit handy if you don't know this geography by heart. I already mentioned one of those concerns, and that is the railroad that leads south from Petersburg to Weldon, North Carolina, and from there on to Wilmington. That railroad was the lifeline from the Atlantic coast to Richmond, and therefore its continued operation was of paramount importance to the Confederate war cause. The Department of North Carolina and Virginia had responsibility for keeping that railroad open. So that's job one. Job two, if you look at your map, you'll see in the sort of the center, running uh, just southeast of Petersburg, down into North Carolina, the Blackwater River. Blackwater River, from 1862 to uh, the time that Grant's army arrives in the summer of 1864, was the de facto line between the United States and Confederate States control, with the U.S. Army to the east and the Confederate States to the west. On, so, on the south side of Virginia, south side of the James. So the Department of North Carolina had responsibility for watching the Blackwater River line as well. So those were the two major things that they were concerned with. There were also a number of Confederate military facilities in Petersburg. There was uh, a lead works, a niter works, a powder works, a rope walk, a wagon shop, a parole camp for paroled Confederate prisoners would wait to be exchanged at a place in Petersburg. It was primarily a hospital center. There were seven large hospitals in Petersburg, uh, most of them in the tobacco factories, the abandoned tobacco factories, but one in the, at the fairgrounds, one at the city park, and interestingly enough, they were all organized by state. There was the Virginia Hospital, the North Carolina Hospital, the Confederate States Hospital that dealt with people from Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. So they organized these hospital facilities to treat soldiers from, from separate states. Now Petersburg did witness some military action in the neighborhood prior to the arrival of Grant's army. Uh, there was a very interesting little combined naval operation up the Appomattox featuring the Monitor, and a United States submarine called the Alligator. I think today we're so focused on the Hunley, uh, for, for good reason, uh, that we forget that there was a submarine that was active prior to that, that's the Alligator, and it was trying to go up the Appomattox River to take out the railroad bridge connecting Petersburg with Richmond, but they, they weren't successful. In August of 1862, there was a fairly major battle down along Coggins Point on the James River, which is just between uh, Fort Powhatan and City Point on your map. D.H. Hill went down there with uh, 45 pieces of artillery trying to bombard the Federal fleet and to contribute to General McClellan's release of control of the north bank of the James River. Uh, this was prior to Lee wanting to shift the theater of war in Virginia to northern Virginia from the Richmond area. So there was a pretty good-sized action there. In March of 1863, Longstreet led a campaign down towards Suffolk, Virginia, which you see 
down at the junction of two little railroads uh, in southeastern Virginia, primarily as a food gathering expedition using the divisions of George Pickett and John Bell Hood. That's where Longstreet, Pickett, and Hood were while Lee was fighting the battle at Chancellorsville. So that, was, that came out of Petersburg as well. Now, of course, Pickett would return to the Army of Northern Virginia in time to go north with the Army, have a very bad day on July 3rd, 1863, and come back with a shattered division, uh, so shattered, in fact, that it would not be part of the Army of Northern Virginia following the Gettysburg Campaign, and Pickett was assigned command of the Department of North Carolina and Virginia. His first act while he was in Petersburg was to get married to young LaSalle Corbell of Nansaman County there in St. Paul's Church. But Pickett's tenure in Petersburg was not a happy one. Uh, Pickett had to deal with persistent rumors of his over-drinking. Uh, he conducted a very poor campaign to Newburn, North Carolina in February of 1864. As a result of all of this criticism he was getting, Pickett could not wait to get back to command of his division with the Army of Northern Virginia, but circumstances would interfere and prevent him from doing so. And of course, those circumstances were the beginning of the combined campaigns under the leadership of U.S. Grant uh, focused on various parts of Virginia, including the south side, where Petersburg was located, uh, being the responsibility of Benjamin F. Butler of Massachusetts and the Army of the James with some 40,000 federal troops who on May the 5th uh, disembarked off their ships onto City Point and Bermuda 100, Bermuda 100 being that little unlabeled peninsula of land between the Appomattox and James Rivers just east of the Richmond and Petersburg Railroad. Now, Butler outnumbered Pickett at this point in the war 30 to 1. Petersburg could have fallen just like that had Butler decided to take it. But he understood his orders not to take Petersburg, but to turn north and cooperate with Meade's army on the opposite side of the James River somewhere upstream from Richmond. And that's the only reason that Petersburg didn't fall during the second week of May of 1862, 1864. Uh, as a result of these decisions, the new commander in Petersburg, PGT Beauregard, arrived and was able to turn back Butler uh, at the Battle of Drury's Bluff on May 16, 1864. But unlike the popular, how, how many times have you read about the Bermuda 100 campaign and gotten that quote about Butler being corked in, a, in, the, in, the, in the peninsula like a, like a bottle, uh, put in the bottle and corked, tightly corked? Well, that's not true, because if you look at the map, uh, Butler has the Appomattox and the James Rivers open to him at any point. He was not at all trapped. The only direction he could not go was west. So he had freedom of movement, including the freedom to try to take Petersburg, which he had plans to do at the end of May, the 1st of June, all of which I won't take up your time to explain why that didn't happen. But finally, on the 9th of June, Butler was able to marshal a 4,600-man task force of cavalry, infantry, and artillery designed to capture all of the military facilities in Petersburg and destroy the bridge over the Appomattox River. Petersburg at this point was defended by about 1,200 men uh, is all it had. So the odds were very strong on, on Butler's part. 
The 9th of June is still the one day in Petersburg that is commemorated from the Civil War. That is the day that Petersburg citizens view as the day that there that was the most heroic behavior of the entire war for them. And that is primarily because of the 150 or so old men and young boys who were beyond the age of even the expanded conscription officers at this point and had rushed down to the south end of the Damak line around the entrance of the Jerusalem Plank Road into the city and took up positions behind an overturned wagon and for several hours held off August Kautz's cavalry division, Butler's cavalry commander, uh, at the expense of 78 of their 150 men being casualties there. It was uh, quite, a, uh, quite a dramatic experience, and uh, I think one of the quotes that I think is, is, is fun to read is from a, a fellow named Anthony, Anthony Keeley. Keeley uh, was a politician. He had been in the Army, he had been injured, he had run for office, he was in the Virginia House of Delegates. Uh, he was home at the time of June the 9th, and he went out along with his townspeople to brandish his firearm and try to defend the city. He wrote that, I paused to help a wounded neighbor, my dentist, William Bellingham. The delay proved my undoing, as a Union soldier presented his loaded carbine, demanded my surrender with an unrepeatable violence of language that suggested bloodshed. I yielded with what grace I could to my fate, captive of a hatchet-faced member of the 1st District Cavalry, greatly enamored of this honorable opportunity of going to the rear. Lovely insult from a prisoner of war. Uh, it was a very sad day, uh, however, the next day in Petersburg, as all of these old men and young boys came back in wagons, either dead or very badly wounded, or did not return because they were prisoners. And uh, young teenaged Ann Bannister, who's one of the, whose memoirs are a great source for understanding nighttime Petersburg, or wartime Petersburg, said, "At night closed in, and we sat down face to face with our woe, some to watch the dying, others to keep sad vigil beside their dead, while numberless hearts agonized in prayer for loved ones torn from home, and now on their way to pine and perhaps die in some northern prison. It was the saddest day that ever dawned on Petersburg. Uh, little did the citizens know, and Bannister included, that June 10th was just about the eve of some very difficult months because, uh, as one of your questions indicated, uh, Petersburg was about to be subject to the longest campaign of the Civil War. Grant, after failing to destroy Lee's army north of the James, of course, moved secretly in a brilliant operation, building a 2,000-foot pontoon bridge across the James River getting onto the south side of the James and sending the 18th Corps and the 2nd Corps west to try to take the Damak Line. Uh, between the 15th and 18th of June, there was a very serious battle on the eastern outskirts of Petersburg. The Federals captured 15 of Damak's batteries, uh, but were not able to break into Petersburg itself. Lee finally realized what was going on, shifted his entire army to Petersburg, and a campaign of trying to cut off the Confederates from the outside world began. Almost as an afterthought, almost as an afterthought, Grant mounted artillery pieces in the captured Confederate batteries, which had been carefully designed to be far enough away from town that enemies firing over them 
could not reach the city with their shells. Now that makes sense. You wouldn't want to put your defense line so close that the enemy could bombard your city. But once those batteries were in federal hands, then the town did come within range of Union guns. And they began shelling the city, not so much as a military tactic, although they were hoping to knock out some like the bridges or something like that, but it was basically a nuisance. Well, for the citizens of Petersburg, this was akin to being subject to terrorism. Innocent civilians going about their daily business being subject to perhaps instantaneous death. Uh, I have a, a couple of quotes for you. Uh, most, of the, most of the citizens and the soldiers in Petersburg thought this was well outside the bounds of civilized warfare. One Virginia soldier wrote, the vandals are shelling the city again. It's almost a daily sport for the Yanks. It is distressing to see the women and children leaving their homes. It's hard on all, but to see a poor woman with a child on one arm and little bundles on the other is enough to move the heart of any man, save a Yankee. The, the eastern half of the city became uninhabitable. All the hospitals had to be evacuated. The trains stopped running into the eastern part of the city. And most of the citizens went out into the countryside to escape the shelling. But they really didn't have any place to go. These poor folks um, would go out into, the, into Dinwiddie County. If they had relatives that lived in a farmhouse in the county, then maybe they had a place to sleep and something to eat. But if they didn't, they would bring blankets and set up little shelters on yards, they would eat berries, they would scrounge for food in the woods. I mean, that's how bad it was. And so by August of 1864, most of those refugees had returned to Petersburg as the lesser of two, evil, two evils, willing to endure being killed by a shell rather than starving to death out into the woods. A Georgia soldier said that the woods and all the country is filled with women, from old gray-haired mothers down to infants, driven from their homes without a change of dressing, thousands of them in the woods without any shelter or protection. Now those who did remain in town in July experienced a very memorable day. And uh, about a mile southeast of town, as many of you know, probably the single most vivid episode of the whole Petersburg campaign was the construction by Pennsylvania coal miners, the 48th Pennsylvania, of a shaft that ran more than 500 feet from a sheltered federal position underneath a Confederate strong point on the line called Pegram's or Elliott's Salient. These Pennsylvanians packed the tunnel with 8,000 pounds of black powder and then in coordination with a major offensive, Grant's third offensive at Petersburg, the powder charge was lit and it exploded uh, at 4.44 a.m. July 30th, 1864. Grant, of course, termed this attack the saddest affair I've witnessed in the war. I think we all are familiar with the fiasco that was the, the Battle of the Crater. But I think less well known is the reaction of some of the Confederate soldiers to having to fight African-American soldiers for the first time. In the Western theater, as Larry knows quite well, the use of black troops at places like Milliken's Bend and Port Hudson had occurred as early as the summer of 1863. But in the Eastern Theater, the black divisions of the Army of the Potomac had not seen any combat until the Battle of the Crater. 
when a division of the Ninth Corps, which was slated to lead the attack, had actually been held back out of concern that these men were not experienced soldiers, they had no combat uh, experience under their belts, and they'd better not go in first. But eventually, as the battle plan unraveled, the black troops were sent in. And this, the sight of these African-American troops um, set the Confederate soldiers off like nothing that they'd ever experienced before. And it's, I think it's important that we understand, before I read you this quote, it's important we, we try to put ourselves in, in those guys' shoes, not to justify it, but to understand it. First of all, the fellow I'm about to quote was from the 12th Virginia Infantry. 12th Virginia was a Petersburg unit. Uh, they were from the city, so they were literally defending their homes. Uh, secondly, blowing up a fort and killing 278 men in the dark of night without any warning was considered pretty dirty pool. That was a dirty trick, and that didn't sit very well with the Confederates. Thirdly, General Lee had arrived on the scene shortly after the explosion and watched the battle, watched the Confederate counterattacks from a position at the G House, which is 500 yards from the crater. I, don't, I'm, I still think that's remarkable that he was that close to the front, but he did the same thing at the Wilderness. He did the same thing at Spotsylvania in moments of crisis, so I guess not all that remarkable. But the officers knew that General Lee was watching them. He was a godlike figure by this time. And lastly, here were these men's former slaves who were now blowing them up in the middle of the night, trying to kill them and trying to attack their homes. The combination of all of this led to some pretty ugly some pretty ugly things. This is a letter that has subsequently been published, but it had not been published when I, when I read it, the Virginia Historical Society. The man who wrote it was a fellow named Henry Byrd. Uh, Henry Byrd was a private in the 12th Virginia, but his dad, he was no, he was no redneck. His dad was president of the Southside Railroad. Uh, he was an educated kid, and he was, wrote a series of letters to his fiance about his wartime experience. And this is a contemporary letter. He said, after a short rest, the prisoners, meaning the Union prisoners, of which many hundreds had broken through and gone to our rear, had to be attended to. The order was given to kill them all. And rapid firing plainly told how well and willingly it was obeyed. Finally, our general sickened of the slaughter and ordered it to be stayed. The figures in the papers will show how we suffered and what a terrible vengeance we took for the men so inhumanely butchered by the Negroes in the morning. Unintended consequences when you let the genie of war out of the bottle. Well, the Petersburg campaign would continue on for another eight months. That's not the subject of our talk tonight, and my time has is, is, is come to a conclusion. Suffice it to say that by April 2nd, 1865, Grant had gotten the Confederates into a position where he was willing to do something that he had not been willing to do since the Battle of the Crater, and that, sent, that was to send his forces straight at the Confederate battle lines. He did that all along the line, and the one place they were successful was at what is now Pamplin Historical Park in what has been termed by the military the Sixth Corps Breakthrough. This was the battle in which A.P. Hill was killed, uh, and the Federals broke a one-mile line a gap in the Confederate line, immediately causing General Lee to send word to Secretary of War Breckinridge in Richmond that it was necessary to evacuate the capital immediately, that Lee would attempt to hold the 
city until nightfall could shield his retreat. He wasn't sure he could even do that, but the government better use what was left of the daylight on April 2nd to get out of Richmond because he was certainly going to retreat uh, that night. And he did hold on for the rest of the day, and then about 8 o'clock p.m. he began pulling his troops across the bridges of the Appomattox River. The citizens who had suffered so long in town watched this procession and said that the sadness and solemnity of that Sabbath day can never be forgotten. The silence, the dead stillness of that last night of the army in Petersburg, the darkness and the hush wrapped us in a pall. With every light extinguished, Petersburg was indeed the city of awful night. At 4.28 a.m., April 3rd, 1865, a Michigan unit entered the town, climbed the steeple of the Petersburg courthouse, and raised the stars and stripes over the cockade city for the first time in almost four years. Six days later, Lee would surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, and a new era in Petersburg history began with the occupation of the city by Union troops. That occupation initially ended on August 3rd, 1865, when civilian rule returned to the cockade city, and Petersburg would begin its long sort of steady decline from one of the seventh largest cities in the south to the small city of 34,000 people it is today. That legacy of the war years is, uh, is very visible in my hometown, uh, and you'll see it when you come to Petersburg in 2011. Uh, miles of grass-grown fortifications, uh, dozens of shell-pocked buildings, vast military cemeteries filled with men of blue and gray who had given the ultimate sacrifice in the defense or the attempt to capture Petersburg. And I hope that the little book that some of you purchased tonight does justice to that wonderful story. And I thank you so much for bringing me back to my real hometown of Chicago. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you very much. Could you take some questions? I'd be happy to. I'll be happy please. to. Roger says if there are any, any questions. Yes, sir. Things were very, very, very tense and uncomfortable in April and May, but by June, July, and first part of August, the white citizens of Petersburg had learned to get along pretty well with their Yankee military masters. They really liked the commander, whose fellow his name was George Hartsuff. He's not exactly an obscure guy, but he's pretty close to obscure, but you may have heard of him. He was the commander in Petersburg of the Reconstruction era. He became very popular with the white citizens in Petersburg. But the people who the whites couldn't stand were the African-American soldiers. That, there was a lot more hostility uh, there than there was to the white soldiers. So the racial, the racial issues trumped the, the issue of North and South in, in, in Petersburg. Uh, I don't imagine that the, my guess would be, and this is just a guess, that during the Reconstruction period that the white governments in the South could, could have cared less what the black people had done during the war. Yes. Uh, have you seen uh, Cold Mountain? I have. I've seen Cold Mountain. Uh, can you give us an assessment of uh, how accurate the first 20 minutes of the movie Well, you know, I... Crater with the exception of the fact there were no black troops there. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and I, you know, I only saw that movie once in the theater, and maybe I wasn't paying attention, but it looked to me like they had the Confederates on the wrong side of the crater when they blowed it up. Um, it looked like all the camps were out, way out in front, uh, and then the explosion was behind them. Uh, I would not use Cold Mountain as much of, a, uh, uh, much of a guide on what the Battle of the Crater was like. I will tell you, though, that just as I'll give a plug to my friend Earl Hess, I don't know when this book will be out. It'll probably be a year or so more, but I just read last night um, his chapter on the crater, and it's the best description of the Battle of the Crater I've ever read. And it provides uh, not so much tactical detail, although there's enough of that to make you happy, but just the way that it looked and the way that it was done technically. Uh, I've been you know, living with the Battle of the Crater for, I started my Park Service career in Petersburg in 1973, so I've been associated with the Battle of the Crater for 30-some years. And I learned things reading Earl's chapter that I had never heard before. So I think that's going to open up a lot of eyes. It was a remarkable, remarkable operation. And it could have worked. The Battle of the Crater could have worked. It was really actually a, a feasible plan. And it was just poorly executed uh, up and down the line by the Federals. But it, it was, and in my view, and Earl agrees, that it could have, it could have been successful. Yes, sir, in the back. Excellent question. Question is, during the, during the siege, how much of the railroad and the transportation network were the Confederates able to control to sustain themselves? First of all, I disagree with the term siege, and I was so gratified that Earl's going to take exception to that as well. I'm always calling it a campaign. It wasn't a siege, like Vicksburg was a siege. The Confederates could always get out of Petersburg. They were not entrapped. In fact, they did get out of Petersburg and survive for another for another week. So that's a sidebar comment. Uh, after the Battle of the Crater, Grant focused exclusively at Petersburg on cutting off the remaining supply lines and transportation networks into town. That was his campaign. And he moved from east to west. And so in order, he, he captured the Petersburg and Weldon Railroad. The real name of that railroad, incidentally, is the Petersburg Railroad. Its slang name is the Weldon Railroad. It was never known as the Weldon Railroad except as a slang. Then he cut off uh, some of the wagon roads leading into town. And by the end of the fall of 1864, there were only two supply lines left to the Confederates. The Boyden Plank Road, a highway, a wagon road that ran southwest out of town, and the Southside Railroad, the rail line that ran due west. Those were Lee's lifelines. He was able to utilize, uh, in, a, in a compromised way, the Petersburg Railroad by offloading supplies at a place called Stony Creek Depot, about 18 miles south of Petersburg, and then transferring everything onto wagons, taking it cross-country to the Boyden Plank Road at the little county courthouse town of Dinwiddie Courthouse, and then up the Boyden Plank Road into the city. Uh, that pretty much went by the by uh, by the January of 1865. This campaign is enormous. You think about, you know, you think about the Battle of Fort Fisher. Have you all ever taken a trip down to Fort Fisher? You have? Okay. So you know where it is down there at the mouth of the Cape Fear River, way down to far southeastern North Carolina. That's part of the Petersburg campaign. Grant went after that so he could cut off that end of the Weldon and Wilmington Railroad to feed into Petersburg. 
and he did it in January of 1865, and that pretty much cut off Lee from getting any supplies from the South. Uh, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864 is clearly part of the Petersburg Campaign. So it's an enormous, it's an enormously interesting and complex military operation, and one that hasn't received its the attention that it's due. And, and I hope that Earl's book will go a long way towards filling those gaps, and I'll, uh, my books will do something in that regard as well. Yes, sir. That's a great question, and again, I'm not really qualified to answer that. All I can do is, is render an opinion. The question is, what was basically the reason for Petersburg's demise? As you go through these large cities in 1860 South, Petersburg's the only one that doesn't become a large city. Why is that? I think it's primarily because of Richmond. I think its proximity to Richmond is probably the, the number one reason. I think it would, be, it would be fun and exciting and make a nice neat circle if you could say the Civil War destroyed Petersburg and it never came back. Uh, I think that would be a little facile. I, I think that Richmond, Petersburg's uh, transportation advantages that it enjoyed in the mid-19th century went away as Richmond became connected by rail with Hampton Roads and with the rest of the, of the South. And there just wasn't room for two big cities 23 miles apart. But the, the war didn't help it either. The war certainly didn't help it. All right, thank you again. Well, thank you very much. Will, Will, thank you very much for an excellent presentation. And on behalf of the Roundtable, I'd like to present you with our medallion for oh, gallant nice. service to the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, presented to A. Wilson Green, October 12, 2007. Thank you, Roger. Thank you very Appreciate much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all very much. And um, just one brief announcement, or two brief announcements. Um, next month, November 9th, John Y. Simon, could the South have won the Civil War? Uh, right here in this room. And also, next weekend, October 20th, there are a number of things, number of Civil War-related activities going on. Our own uh, Bob Miller, you'll be at the Abraham Lincoln Bookstore doing a presentation on your book and signing books. There's also at the Pritzker uh, Civil War Saturday at the same time, and also Civil War events at Cantigny. Uh, it's a shame people didn't coordinate those activities and spread them out over several weekends, but nonetheless, that's next weekend, and I look forward to seeing all of you, and thank you very much. Drive safely.